So how's it going for you in that uh, huge part of life that we generally refer to as relationships? Um, it's kind of a catch-all term that, that really encompasses everything. I mean, it's friends, it's family, single dating, marriage, sexuality, um, gender, orientation, preference. We just kind of throw the, the word relationships over all of that. Can you, uh, can you relate? <laughs> um, roommates, classmates, till death do us part mates. Single, single for a season, called to be single, reluctantly single, strategically single. <laughs> Mother, father, sister, brother, grandparent, uncle, aunt, cousin. Boyfriend, girlfriend, hanging out, talking, going steady, dating. Gay, straight, bi, male, female, neither. But you don't know what I've done. But you don't know what's been done to me. Can you relate? So this relatable thing we're getting into for the coming weeks surely doesn't offer easy answers to some complex stuff. But what we pledge to you in these coming weeks is an honest look at um, truth from God's perspective. Bottom line is that the one who made us relational, the one who made us relatable, is the secret to doing this thing called relatable. Reality is we're, we're wired by God to be relatable. <clears throat> that being relatable with God then helps with being relatable with everybody else down here. That the grace and truth of Jesus is what we need for healing and help in all aspects of relationships. And that the whole deal that we call relationships, from single, dating, marriage, or not, it's, it's, it's all a matter of, of being made relatable by Jesus. Let's dive right in with some relationship traits that are either, uh, depending on which side you land on, they're either thriving or toxic, or uh, they could be flourishing or flushing. You want to go with some toilet imagery there? Some, 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 some traits that are essential to relationships. And, uh, and this goes across the board. I mean, this works between you and your grandmother. This works between you and that roommate who keeps drinking your milk. These attributes are, are, are relevant to you if, uh, in whatever aspect of relationship you're, you're dealing with. First, sacrifice or selfishness on the thriving side. Thriving relationships model sacrifice, sacrificial love, sacrificial action. And on the other side, the toxic side of it is selfish. Measure yourself before you measure the other person in a relationship, especially if it's your grandmother. Measure yourself in this way before you start putting the selfish label on somebody else. Strive to be sacrificial and see what that does to the way you feel about your roommate drinking your milk. I still didn't like it when Philip drank my milk. <laughs> Commitment versus convenient. Thriving relationships thrive on commitment. And uh, relationships that are flush-worthy are just convenient. 
commitment. I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. Not just when it's easy, not just when it's convenient. Keep in mind, these traits run the gamut of, of our relationships. How about integrity versus relative? And what, what I mean by there is that it's really hard to have a relationship with somebody for whom truth or rightness is just really relative to the situation. I mean, you never know what you're going to get from somebody. Relationships thrive when the parties in a relationship are committed to integrity. And they thrive even more when that integrity happens to be biblical truth. Relationships thrive when there is communication. And on the, the flesh-worthy side, it is isolation. See, the opposite of communication is not just not communication, but the opposite of communication, I'm saying, is, is isolation. That not communicating isolates you and isolates that other person from you. Call your grandmother. Thriving relationships are durable as opposed to disposable. Not only do they last, but they last because you've considered them important enough to invest in for the long haul. Thriving relationships are, are, uh, are marked by humility as opposed to personal ambition. The personal ambition that I'm going to get out of this relationship what I want out of this relationship, and I want the cookies, grandmother. That's what I'm in it for. Thriving relationships show, show humil humility. And finally, faithfulness versus wandering. Toxic relationships wander. Wander, just not really locked in on the relationship, not really committed to being there, not really bringing all I've got, but just wandering. Committed relationships thrive on faithfulness. So any relationship is better if you apply the traits on the left column to that relationship. Any relationship is made better by those thriving traits. But check this out. God has already applied all of these traits to his relationship with you. And he did it through the life and the death and the resurrection again of, the, of Jesus and the, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has already applied all of these traits to his relationship with you. And so now trusting Jesus is the way that those, these traits become a reality, not just in your relationship with God, but in your relationships out here with everybody else. Relating to God like this makes you more relatable in every single relationship that you deal with. Because it is God's strategy to take over the world and to bring the kingdom by using our relationships to flood the world with his presence through us. It is God's strategy to take over the world and to bring the kingdom through our relationships with people like in marriages and families and workplace, roommates, group projects and campus ministries. In any place you are where there are people, God's strategy to take over the world is to, to flood the world with his presence through our relationships with other people. So let's be about, about that. The reference point for all of our relationships is the one who made us and made us relatable and created this whole idea of relationships. There are... Uh, I want to tell you that we're made for relationships. And there are two 
two ways of looking at this. One, we were created in the first place to be relatable. And then the second is that we are pursued and recreated to be relatable. In the beginning, we were created and made to be relatable. If you look in the beginning in Genesis, in 127, God says, hey, let's make humanity and let's do it in our image. And they're going to be male and female reflecting our image, the image of God. In the beginning, we were made relatable with God. We were made for relationship with God. But it's not just that we were made for relationship with God, but in the beginning when God made humanity, we were made to be social. We were made to be relational. If you look in chapter 2 of Genesis 2.18, the first and only time in, cre- in the creation story where the, the phrase not good is used is used where the man was alone. And God said, that's not quite right. That's not good. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So then the creation of community, of, of, of male and female, of, of, of marriage, of family. But it's more than a male and female thing, and it's more than a marriage thing. It's a community thing that God created us relational to need, to want, community, relationship. So in the beginning, we were created relatable. God created in us this capacity to be relatable. But when things ran off the track in Genesis 3, and human history was playing out in, a, in an unfortunate kind of way, then God moved to pursue and to recreate so that we could once again be made relatable. The Old Testament looked forward to this coming, and it happened in Jesus. And there's this one place in the book of Hosea, where Katie read a while ago, where God, through this prophet, is speaking to his people, and he's foreshadowing what is to come when Jesus would come and do the full deal of saving his people and once again making us relatable with God. Um, so last week it was Joel, and, uh, and I assigned you homework to, to read Joel, and well, Hosea is about four times as long as Joel, and I don't really know, especially on a week where there are a lot of tests. I don't, I'm not even going to sign it, but let me, just, let me just highly recommend that you get around to reading Hosea. Um, just a riveting story. Um, chapter 2, you'd almost think you were reading from Song of Solomon. Um, there's just this really sweet part of, of, of Hosea chapter 2. Let me give you the quick, um, the quick rundown on, um, on Hosea, what's going on in the book of Hosea. It's this crazy Bible love story about what happens when faithfulness meets brokenness. The part of brokenness is played by God's people, Israel. And the part of faithfulness is played by by God. But God uses the prophet Hosea to be kind of the leading guy in the the scene. Um, God's people were in a really dark chapter of of their life and existence. Um, they um, They were unfaithful to God. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, if you were to compare it to a marriage, they were adultering against, against God. So God called his prophet Hosea to do a strange thing. He called his prophet Hosea to go marry a prostitute, and her name was Gomer. So God called the prophet Hosea to go marry a prostitute, Gomer, as a sign of, of what was going on between him and his people. The point was that his people were prostituting themselves away from from their love of God. 
So God called Hosea to marry Gomer, and he did. And she had three children by that marriage. But she had a hard time staying home. She just had a, a wandering soul. And uh, she, just kept, she just kept wandering. And so this passage that we come to in Hosea 2 is a statement of how God feels of God's love toward his unfaithful bride, Israel. And it's a statement of, of what God would do to, to woo her back and to, to win her back. For us, it's a, it's a statement and a reminder of how God romances us, of how God reestablishes with us the relationship that's been broken. It's a, it's a way of seeing how God makes us once again relatable, relatable to him so that we can then be relatable to everybody else. So let's walk through Isaiah, Hosea 2, starting with verse 14. And I just want to touch on several, several things there where we see how God romances us, how God pursues us to remake us relatable. In verse 14, it all starts with but... And this but refers back to all the reasons that have been listed earlier in this chapter that God has not to romance us. I mean, things were bad. Things were bad. But Romans reminds us that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And this but in 2.14 reminds us that it's while we were still sinners that God moved into action to win us back. But then I will win her back again. Hey, would you bring to mind something that you think is unlovable about you? Would you just bring to mind something that you think is unlovable about you? Now, would you just kind of click and drag that over to the trash and drop it there? Because the thing that you think is unlovable about you, is irrelevant to the way God feels about you. There's nothing about you that God looks at and says, ooh, can't love that. I promise you, that is truth. And that's how this gets started. In spite of all the reasons God had not to romance Israel, he did anyway because of his deep love. But then I will win her back once again. And God feels that way about you. He goes on to say in verse 14 that I will win her back again. And uh, that's this taste and see that the Lord is good moment where one of, the, one of the versions uses the word allure. I will allure her. I will draw her. I will show her how good it is to come back to me. And so it is that God allures us and draws us back to him even in our wandering, even in our wandering, draws us back with his magnetic goodness. He goes on to say in verse 14 that he, he rescues her. Um, and that's in another version. It uses the word rescue to describe um, that, that when he leads her out into the desert. Um, see, the desert was a symbol of rescue to God's people. That they had been rescued from Egypt through the desert. So to lead her out into and through the desert was a means of rescue. And every good romance has a rescue story. Like when I was a kid coming up, the classic rescue story was always that the woman the, the, got tied up on the railroad track. And there was a train coming. 
And, uh, <laughs> and so the hero unties her from, and rescues her from the train track. There's always a rescue story in a good romance. And there is one here where God rescues his people. Hey, I don't know what, um, what brokenness or bondage or what rescue you might feel a need for. But there's probably a part of you that, that feels like it needs to be rescued. Well, part of God's love story, God's romance of you, includes his rescue of you from that which would take you down, which would take you under. And I don't mean to say that it's going to be a quick fix, and I don't mean to say that it's going to be easy. But if you stay with God for the long haul, whatever it is that needs a rescue in you will find its rescue in the strong love of our God. In verse 14 still, there's heart language. I will speak tenderly to her there. I will speak to her heart. You see, God speaks tenderly to, to our hearts, to the, to the place of our deepest hurts and to the place of our highest thrills. God meets us right there. God romances us not with a, a quick fix, but, a, but with a long-term relationship. Look at 2.15. I will return her vineyards to her. Vineyards, you know, it takes a while for grapes to grow. It takes a while for the vines to, to grow to where they produce. And then it takes a while for the, for the grapes to, to grow. This is a symbol of a long-term relationship, a reminder of God's promise and God's provision. Not a quick fix, but a long-term committed covenant. God is in it with you for the long haul. The basis of you being made relatable with God is that He is in it with you for the long haul. And when He's in it with you for the long haul, then that has impact on all our other relationships down here. Verse 15 speaks of the, the valley of trouble or maybe the valley of Achor if you're reading a different, a different version. Um, but this was, a, this was a scene of a failure where the, the, the people of Israel had had committed a sin and there was a great failure and there was heartache attached to this valley of, of Achor because of disobedience. So for us, um, that raises the question, what are the, what are the hurts in your life about which you wish you could feel hopeful? God cares intensely about those things. Is there a failure in your, in your life, in your past that haunts you, that still haunts you? Well, God would meet you there in your valley of trouble and turn that from heartache to hope. Still in verse 15, God romances us with a, with a two-way relationship. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in, in Egypt. So it's not just God loving his people, but it's his people now loving God back. This, this, this way that God rescues us and makes us relatable all over again by reconnecting us with him, it grows to be a two-way relationship, something that he, we participate in, not just something that he does. To verse 16, it's about love over power. The day comes when you will call me husband instead of master. You see, God's not looking to rule your life. God just wants to love you. And God is making you reconnected to him in relationship 
by his great love, not by force. Verse 17 speaks of real change. O Israel, I will wipe away the names of Baal from your lips. You will never mention them again. That the way God romances us and rescues us and makes us relatable all over again is to work real change in us by the power of the Spirit. Verse 18 speaks of security. The image is here uh, of, I will remove all weapons of war from the land. It's, it's, um, but the security that we have in God is bigger than a physical kind of security. It's, it's eternal, it's spiritual in nature. This is how God is reconnecting us to himself. And then to verses 19 and 20, we just hear the string of vocabulary words, the vocabulary of a romantic God. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. How would you like to be loved like that? Well, that is exactly the kind of love that the Lord has in mind to give to you, and it's that kind of love that reaches into your life and reconnects the relationship that's gotten a little cloudy or murky. And when that relationship gets transformed, then these relationships get, tr get transformed. And that's what this whole thing about relatable is all about. Getting our relationship with the Lord clear so that our relationships down here are clear. The passage wraps up in verse 23 with this pretty amazing section where you have to understand what happened in chapter 1 to understand what's happening here in chapter 2. But there's this renaming and reversal where, uh, where God in his faithfulness renames Israel and, and, and the, the, the bad things that happened in chapter 1 get reversed and turned into, into blessing. Here's the quick of it. When... Um, when Hosea's prostitute wife, Gomer, had the three babies, God told Hosea what to name the babies. And the first baby was to be named um, Jezreel because that was where they were and it was where it happened and it was just kind of a, a reminder of, you're in a bad place, so we're going to name your baby that. The second baby was born and the second baby was named Not Loved. Not Loved, a cruel name to name a baby, but it was for a prophetic reason. And the third baby was named Not My People as a prophetic statement that because of Israel's faithlessness, they had made themselves not God's people. So now we get to the, the end of this string of blessings of the way God is pursuing his people. And he says, here's, here's the thing that's left. I'm about to change some names. The child that was named Jezreel, we're going to leave his name Jezreel, but we're going to go with the original meaning that was intended the original meaning of Jezreel is God plants. The, the Jezreel Valley is this fertile valley where things grow that God would plant. It's, it's a way of moving on from the past and moving on into a faithful future with God. That he renamed that child Jezreel. The second baby gets renamed Loved. The one that got named Not Loved. <clears throat> no, we're going to name this baby Much Loved. Yes, you were loved. Absolutely, you were loved. And then the third, that had been named not my people because Israel had forsaken their identity as God's people. Now, that baby is going to get named mine. My people, I claim you, I love you, I desire you.
You see, um, Gomer's three babies were named with these prophetic statements because of the faithlessness and disobedience of God's people. But now the names get changed and the judgments get reversed. And, and it's like grace now flows in reverse through the consequences to bring healing and wholeness and newness. So that raises a good question for you and me. What names have you picked up along the way? What labels do you wear because somebody stuck that label on you? Or maybe because of a struggle or a failure or some trouble at some time? What names have you picked up? What labels do you wear? You may feel like your name is used just because of stuff you've been through. God looks at you calling yourself used and calls you instead cherished, precious. Whatever name, whatever label you wear or you see for yourself, the good news of this is that God sees something different. God has pursued you like he pursued his people in Hosea. And God blesses you, remakes you relatable with him, which then has impact on all these other relationships down here. God has a way of making you new from whatever kind of old name or label you think fits you. So for every relationship or every relationship matter that we're going to be talking about, it really all comes back down to this, that in the beginning we were, we were wired to be relatable. And when that didn't go so well, God stayed in the business of making us, remaking us to be relatable. And now reconnected with God through Jesus, we have this relatable connection with God that bears fruit in our relationships down here. And what we're going to do in the weeks to come is to, to explore the relationships that we have down here in light of the fact that God made us relatable in the beginning and in Christ God has renewed us, remade us to be all that he intended us to be in the first place. Look forward to doing that together. But for now, let's pray and, uh, and consider these things in prayer. God, if you want to do some renaming tonight, then um, we would welcome you to do that. If there's somebody who's got a name that's got them stuck in the past, would you speak to them a new name that sends them into the future that you have for them? God, for somebody who, who just feels unloved and unlovable. Would you speak the name precious, cherished, dearly loved? For one who feels apart from you and isolated and alienated and not yours, would you claim that person with with the simple word mine, would you speak the word mine 
over one who needs to know that they are yours. God, thanks for making us with the capacity for relationships. But, uh, but honestly, God, it's not easy. It's not easy because of our own stuff, and it's not easy because of other people that we have relationships with. So by your Holy Spirit, would you sweep in? Would you forgive what needs to be forgiven? Would you heal what needs to be healed? Would you restore what's broken? Would you reconnect us with you by Jesus? And would you use all of our relationships down here for your honor and glory? It's all in the name of Jesus. We pray and trust. Amen. His worshiping people will be a purified people, a people delighted.